great to see you. I hope you've had some great holidays with family. And uh, as you know, today we're starting a new series in the book of Esther. And I don't, I don't know what book may come to your mind if somebody asks you what's the book of the Bible that you're most interested in. You know, it might be Genesis and the accounts of creation or, or, and the flood or Exodus and the plagues that uh, came down on Egypt and the crossing of the Red Sea and the wanderings in the wilderness. Maybe you're in like the story of Jonah. Maybe it's First and Second Samuel and all that great stuff that goes on with David and his life. Maybe you'd pick something in the New Testament, like the Book of Acts and the growth of the church, or or uh, uh, the, one of the Gospels, or the Book of Romans and its great doctrine, or possibly the Book of Revelation and all the end time events. Some of you might actually pick the Book of Esther. Because you've got this great story, a highly unlikely story, a highly unlikely queen. I mean, we've got a Jewish orphan girl who becomes queen of Persia, the most powerful nation in the world. Who would think it doesn't just happen? And, And in it all, we see how God protected his people while they were under Persian rule. And that's the series we're going to be starting today. You may already know there's something unusual about this book. And that is that there's no direct mention of God anywhere in it. Seems pretty unusual, right? In fact, it's the only book of the Bible with no reference to God, with the possible exception of Song of Solomon, where there's one word in one verse that may or may not be translated as the name of God based on how it's translated. But not only is there no reference to God in the book of Esther, there's also no reference to prayer or faith, nothing, really unusual. But I'm so thankful that God gave it to us because in it we see the way things normally work. I mean, think about it. If you remember our Christmas series, you had an angel appearing to Zacharias, right? And then an angel appearing to Mary and Joseph, and then a whole bunch of angels appearing to to the shepherds. That must have been some experience, don't you think, to have these powerful beings appear to you and talk to you. But part of the reason those stories were recorded for us is because they're not the norm, They're highly unusual because God was about to do something unique. It's not the way things normally work. And one of the reasons I'm so glad God gave us this book is because it shows how he normally is involved in our lives. See, the reality is, for most of us, we go through life with God sort of in the background. He he doesn't send angels to us to direct us. He doesn't audibly speak to us. He doesn't write something across the sky. No, that doesn't happen. What happens is, thankfully and amazingly, God's just always there. He's always there, always engaged, always working for us. He cares for us from the background. And that's the beauty, I think, of this book. And in that sense, it's like our lives. God's name isn't in the book, but God's hand is all over it. If you're a believer, you've had the experience where you look back and you go, oh yeah, look, look at that. Look at how God provided. That's, you know, maybe there's a situation where you're all uptight about something, you weren't sure how it was going to work out, or you were 
you were just in see a way out in a certain situation. And then somehow God provided. He provided maybe in a way you'd expect, maybe in a way you didn't expect. But you realized as you look back, that was God. Through the good and the bad, he was there. I know we all know that. But every once in a while, we get reminded of it, don't we? I had an experience like that just recently. I had to go down to Georgia. An uncle of ours had passed away. I went down for the funeral just a few weeks ago. And I got there a little bit early. This was in Dahlonega, Georgia. It's a little town just in the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. And I got there a few hours early. I thought, I'm going to drive out to the place where my grandparents used to live when I was a kid. And, uh, and just drive by, and it's like, well, I'll, go, I'll run and go do that. And, and it's just a place that I loved to go to. I think all, all of us grandkids, we all loved going to this place. It's just so, so fun, especially as a, as a little boy, because they lived off the main road on a dirt road, and up this dirt road where nobody else, there's a house on one far end where two elderly ladies lived, but where my grandparents lived, you couldn't see another house. It was surrounded by forest. Uh, they, it was just a great place to be able to go as a kid because you could. Grandpa had, had pastures where he had a couple of milk cows usually and a couple of pigs, and 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 you could just run all day long, get out in the woods and get lost, which we did, and and just have a great time. Always wanted to do it. I remember. Uh, my brother and I grabbing our shotguns and going hunting out in the woods there, which you think about that, we were just kids. You know, I don't know how many parents would do that today. Hey, see you later. Go take your shotgun, head for the woods. And just so much fun. And I remember laying there at night in the, during the summertime and the windows would be open and, and, and just, just pitch black. And, and you could listen and you could hear the whippoorwills calling in the, in the trees. Just loved that. And uh, so I'm, I thought I'll drive out there and t- take a look at it. This is a place that, boy, any day of the week as a kid, I would have chosen to go there rather than to Disney. You know, that's how much fun it was to me. And uh, so I drove out, drive, drive out there and, uh, and uh, I turn onto the dirt road. And there's immediately a, a big sign that's been nailed to a tree. It says, private road, absolutely no trespassing. So, so naturally, I just kept on driving. <laughs> I drive on up there, and I, I've driven by the house a, f- a few times through the years, but I'm thinking, I don't know when I'm going to get back here. I want to go see the place again. And, uh, and uh, as I'm driving up there, I think, well, you know what? I'm not just going to drive by. I'm going to pull up and get out. And I, and, I'm, and, and I think, I'll, they may think this is really weird, but I'm just going to go up to the door and knock, tell them who I am, tell them my grandparents live there. And, you know, when I was growing up, would they mind, as strange as it may be, if some stranger is walking around their yard for a few minutes? Just give me a few minutes just to take a look around. And uh, so I get out, I go up to the door, I'm knocking, and I'm, I'm walking across that yard, and it's just like, wow, how many years has it been since I walked across this yard? So strange. It's just a, an, I can't really fully explain what it was like for me. And I knock on the door, and, and I keep knocking, nobody's home. And I think, well, as I turn around and go back to my truck, sort of disappointed, I wanted to 
spend a little time there. I, but as I turn around and I, and I come back to the middle of the yard and heading back for my truck, I think, wait a second. You know, over there is where Grandpa's barn used to be, down over there. And I start thinking through what was here and what, was, and what things we did there. And for a few moments there, I'm just going through these memories of what we did there. The time with family and all the memories. And then it's, it's shifted in my mind from the memories of that place to all these years since that, those moments when I was there. All these years later, how through every moment of life, through the best times of my life, and through the darkest times of my life, God's been there. How faithful he's been. How good he's been. How he's watched over and taken care and provided. He was always there. And that's the way it is with what we call God's providence. It's not a word that's used a whole lot anymore but it's one of the most important truths you need to know in your Christian experience, to know that God is there caring for you, even when you can't see him, to know that God is working all things for your good, to know, hey, your boss doesn't have the last say. Your spouse doesn't have the last say. Your health doesn't have the last say. Your checkbook doesn't have the last say. None of your circumstances have the last say. Even you don't have the last say. It's so important for all of us to remember the truth of God's providential care. Even now, especially now, as we head into the beginning of a new year, with all the uncertainty we have in our world. I mean, people all around us are fearful. It's, it's beyond worry, isn't it? Beyond worry, it's actual fear. There's so much. It feels like our world has gone insane. But in that insanity, to know that we can rest in the certainty of God's providential care for us, that's what grounds us. That's what gives us security in an unsecure world. And we don't live in fear as those who know him. So, so while there's no reference to God in this book, there is a clear picture for us of that providential hand of God. But the thing about God's providence is we aren't told what he's doing ahead of time. We can only look back. We, we can look back and see it. And we can look forward and trust it. But God doesn't tell us in advance what he's going to do, how he's going to do it. We look back on the seemingly coincidental events that so often steer us in one direction or another. The chain of causes and effects that make our lives turn one way and not another. And we see that and we realize that the only explanation for that is the hand of God. Or when we go through a difficult time, and, and, and a lot of times we tend to treat those times like, like a puzzle where we want God to put all the pieces together. We want to make it all fit together right in some way. But the believer that has a trust in God's plan and in his care, if the puzzle never comes together for us, it's okay because we trust him. You can be going through the most difficult times of your life if you believe in God's providential care for you. That truth 
brings peace and comfort and strength in the middle of that struggle. The Christian that has a hold of that truth can handle whatever comes at them. It's, it's the great stabilizer of our lives. That's true as well as we look back at the story of this book. Actually, this story is even more interesting if we understand some of the history. See, since the days of Moses, the Jews and a tribe of nomadic people called the Amalekites have been bitter enemies. And it all started when the Amalekites attacked the Israelites after the Exodus. Later on, God commanded the Israelites to, to wipe the Amalekites out. And in wiping them out, they weren't to plunder anything from them, just wipe them out. But King Saul, he, he, as they defeated the Amalekites, allowed his army to plunder them. And also, he allowed the king of the Amalekites to live, a guy named Agag. Now, hundreds of years later, in the palace of Ahasuerus, the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, you may know, you may know him uh, by the Greek version of his Persian name, Xerxes, God allowed a descendant of Agag to confront a descendant of Saul, and it all ends up in a whole big story of intrigue that we'll be seeing in this series. And we'll get back to it in the weeks ahead. Where we're at today, at the very beginning, the story seems to be in the hands of Ahasuerus. But what we soon see is that Ahasuerus' life is the opposite of being in control. It seems like Ahasuerus is the guy in charge. Seems like he's got it all under control. But when you look carefully at what happens, you realize he's completely out of control. And what we'll see in this entire story is that it was directed by God for the benefit of his people. It all begins about 55 years after Zerubbabel led the first group of exiles back to Jerusalem under Cyrus's decree. If you remember, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 586 BC. They, they took the people off into captivity. In 529 BC, then the Persians defeated the Babylonians. And then God uses King Cyrus of the Persians to let the people begin to go back. And so they're heading back to to Jerusalem, heading back to Israel. But some of the Jews, for, for whatever reason, maybe because they'd found freedom that they enjoyed there under Persia, maybe because they had established businesses that were profitable for them, they'd established roots there, they stayed for whatever reason, living under the rule of Ahasuerus, who had ruled Persia for 21 years. We're told that he ruled from India to Ethiopia. He's the most powerful man on all the earth at the time, and, he, and, and what's more, he knew it. You know, he, he's, he's a guy who was full of himself. He, he thought so highly of himself that inscriptions have been found where he calls himself the great king, the king of kings, the king of the lands occupied by many races, the king of this great world. You get the picture? This guy is full of pride. And at the beginning of the story, he throws a huge party just to show off, just to, so people will be impressed by him. A party that actually lasts for half a year. Half a year. Just to show off all the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty, 
Because after all, isn't everything about Ahasuerus? He sure thought so. Let's look at it. Chapter 1, verse 1. Now it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa. Stop there for just a second. King Ahasuerus sitting on his royal throne. All the Persian kings are always pictured sitting on their throne. Canopy over them, sitting on the throne. Why is that? Why is it important for Ahasuerus to be sitting on his throne? Well, because he wants to give the impression he's in control. I can sit here in the shade, and I can rule this world. I can sit here in the shade, and what I say should happen, happens. I'm in complete control. That's the picture he, he wants to get, have people have of him, that he's in control. In fact, there's actually carvings of Ahasuerus seated during it, battles where he's sitting back and letting the army fight it out. He's seated there. He's full of pride just to get people to believe he's under control. That's the way he wanted to be viewed. In reality, though, as you look at the story, it's just the opposite. We know God's the one in control. Ahasuerus' life is out of control. He's there at his palace in Susa. Actually, he had three other palaces. This was his favorite one for winter and spring because it was too hot in the summer, but he loved going there for winter and spring. And he throws this party. Look at verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes in attendance, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in the, his presence. And he, he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days, 180 days. We're told the Persian royal parties could entertain up to 15,000 people. Can you imagine that? 15,000 people for 180 days. I mean, you, you thought you had a big party over the holidays. 15,000, 180 days. All paid for by the government. <laughs> All to display his glory. And that big party was followed up by another party. It lasted for another week. No big deal. It's just a week long. Verse 5. When these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa, from the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds, and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace, which belonged to King Ahasuerus. So they're there throwing this other week-long party with these incredible furnishings that are described here, so ornate, white and blue linen hangings in the garden fastened with cords to silver rings on marble pillars. Pill pillars. 
couches of gold and silver placed on a mosaic pavement of all these costly stones. Archaeologists have actually found the remains of this palace, and the details given there have been verified. Wine was being served in golden goblets. The Targum, which is the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, says that they were these vessels that they were drinking from were taken from the temple in Jerusalem by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone could have as much of the wine or as little of it as they wanted. And they're having this grand party. And while all the guys are having their party, Queen Vashti's over here throwing a party for the ladies. Everything's going like a Hazuerus would want it. Everybody's having a good time. Everybody's impressed with him and his wealth. And then Ahasuerus came up with a way to impress everyone even more. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. Pretty impressive, huh? <laughs> the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. So here's the big idea. I mean, no doubt, these people, they had oohed and awed at all the possessions of Ahasuerus because that's what they were supposed to do. They had smothered him with false praise over his bravery in battle because that's what they were supposed to do. They had laughed at his bad jokes. That's what they were supposed to do. They had taken part in his blatant immorality because that's what they were supposed to do. But after 180 days... There's got to be something else, right? There's got to be something else he can do to make all of them wish that they were him. And he's got this one thing. There's still one thing left that he hadn't displayed to them. It was his most valuable possession, and it was his most beautiful possession. He wanted all these intoxicated men to feast their eyes on his queen. So his answer is bring in Vashti. She's Beautiful. Everybody's going to be very impressed. He's thinking, they're going to wish they were me. This was going to be his crowning moment. He was going to parade her in in front of all these inebriated men. In fact, some Jewish sources say, don't know whether it's true or not, but they say that where it tells us that she should come in with her royal crown, those sources tell us that that commandment, that was all she was to be wearing. If that's true. Think how twisted this guy is. But it sounded like a great idea to Ahasuerus. So he gave orders to have Vashti brought in. There's only one problem, verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. An insult of insults. Vashti refuses to obey his demands. I mean, who can blame her, right? Who can blame her? History tells us that she's the granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, so she's probably used to getting whatever she wanted her entire life, and she doesn't want this. But Ahasuerus wasn't counting on Vashti deciding she didn't want to be parading in front of all these 
drunken men. And, and while he, we can sit back and we can sort of admire her for daring to do this, Ahasuerus is steaming mad. How dare she embarrass him like that in front of all these guys that, that he's been trying to oppress. And so he goes on a tirade. He's actually known for having a bad temper. In fact, at one point, he had a bridge built over some water that uh, immediately urged, uh, faced a storm and a, and a bridge came down. And he's so upset with it. He goes out into the water with a whip and whips the water. Because that made total sense to him. And then he took the 300 men and had them beheaded. Uh, this is a guy you don't, don't want to upset, you know? He's not very stable. He wants to have this picture that he's in control, that everything's good, that he's rich and powerful and strong, but he's weak. And he vacillates. Maybe you've heard about the Battle of Thermopylae, one of the all-time great stories of ancient history where this narrow pass was held by 300 Spartans. They actually had some other help from some other Greek city-states, but basically these 300 Spartans holding this narrow pass against a great Persian army that you've seen numbers of 100,000 to 150,000 soldiers. So 300 versus 150,000. They've got this narrow pass they're trying to protect, and they're fighting with everything they've got, and it's a struggle for the Persians to win. They, they do win. They actually end up killing 299 of the 300 soldiers that are there. One guy escapes to get back and tell what had happened. But the, the, that victory was so hard fought, it was such a struggle for the Persians that it felt like a loss. And Ahasuerus goes home pouting. It's embarrassing to him. He turns to his harem for comfort because this is a guy that had to find some way of building himself up. You get the picture, right? This is not a strong individual. And now with Vashti refusing, he asks the leaders what he should do. He calls in seven wise men. They had special access to his presence. And he's basically asking, what can he legally do about this? And one of the guys, Mimikan, says not only had Vashti done wrong to the king, but it, she did, had done wrong to all the people. And he's like, how's that? Well, Mimikan says that if Vashti goes unpunished, other wives would think they could get away with disobeying their husbands. And we can't have that, right? can't have all the women disobeying their husbands. That'd be a disaster. I'll just leave it right there. <laughs> so they've got to stop this potential avalanche of disobedience. And Mimikan advises immediate drastic action. He says the Hazuerus should issue a decree that Vashti would never again be allowed to enter the presence of the king. And, and so He's like, hey, you should put it out publicly to, so that all the women will hear it and won't be tempted to disobey. That'll show them. And Ahasuerus, he liked the idea, so he issues the decree, had it sent through the entire empire, that every man should be the master in his own house. Isn't that so typical? 
and not just the men, but of all of us. See, all of us want to be our own master. We all are a little like Ahasuerus. All of us want to feel like we're in control. But we've got it together. We want other people to think that we've got it together. We're self-sufficient. We're all a little like him. Next thing we see at the beginning of chapter 2 is that Ahasuerus gets to missing Vashti. The attendants may be wondering if Ahasuerus is going to change his mind about her, and they, they know he can't do that. You know, you've probably heard the phrase, the law of the Medes and Persians, you know, something that can't be changed, the law of the Medes and Persians. And, and according to that law, any law or proclamation that was made couldn't be repealed, that once it was written, it stands. So his attendants know his decree about Vashti can't be reversed. They've got to do something. They're thinking, so what do they do? And they come up with a plan. Find the king a new queen. Chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti. Oh, he's wavering again. There's old Ahasuerus. He's not very solid. And what he, she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's attendants who served him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom. They, they may gather every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, into the custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given them. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti, and the matter please the king and he did accordingly. So the search begins. Get all, get all the beautiful young virgins, bring them in. Josephus tells us that there are 400 girls brought in for Ahasuerus to choose from. 400. That's the king. That's the guy in charge. That's the guy with the control. He's got all these women. He's got a huge ego. He's got a terrible temper. He wants to look like he's in control, but he's living a life that's out of control. And we begin to learn very quickly in this book that no one lives independently of God. Oh, they, they may try, they may appear to, but there's always going to be something missing. Not even the most powerful man on earth could do it. Not even Ahasuerus in all of his self-sufficiency. It's ironic. He wanted to show the extent of his power and his wealth, but he couldn't even control his own home. Where he's wanting to show his power, his weakness is seen. He's a man controlled by his emotions and by cravings that he can't get fulfilled. And it raises a question for all of us. Who's controlling our lives? I mean, we can try to live independently of God. We may even think we're living dependently on him, but we're, we're, we're the ones making the determining factors. We're the ones where everything's based on our desires. Or we can live under his control, his control, where we're not controlled by emotions and by cravings, where we're not constantly looking for something to bring fulfillment, 
where we're not always coming up empty, where we don't have to live in fear. We can live dependently on him and let him bring contentment to our lives. That's what will bring stability in an unstable world. That's what gives security in an unsecure world. As we go into this new year, and if you're not sure if you're living dependently on him or yourself, as we go into this new year and you want to know if you're relying on God or on yourself, I mean, just take an honest look at your life. How stable, how secure are you when things around you are unstable? Take an honest look. Do you have stability or is it only a facade of stability? How do you respond when things don't go like you'd planned? You get frustrated? You worry? You get angry? How do you respond? Wouldn't it be great with this new year and with all the concerns that are out there to face it relying on God and his care for you? Wouldn't it be great instead of relying on yourself and what you can put, pull together to rely on him? Thanking him for your past and trusting him for your future. Talk about a great New Year's resolution. What if we just committed today to trust him with what's ahead? I mean, how many times have you heard in the last few days on the news or wherever how people are just nervous about this year? Wouldn't it be something to go into this year with the confidence and hope and surety that God, the God of heaven, is caring for you through it all? And for some of us, maybe we need to take that first step of trusting him. Trusting him to forgive our sin to give us new life, you can take that step today. You can turn to him and just and by faith alone, asking him to forgive you, to come into your life. There's nothing like walking through life, the good and the bad, knowing that the God of heaven is walking through it with you. For believers today, it's not only important for our lives that we trust him for the future and that we trust in his care. It's important for a world around us that needs to see some sense of security. Let's present that to them. Let's have it in our lives because that's what God would want. And let's present to this world the confidence and the hope that only God can bring to a life. Let's do that this year. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, for your goodness and loving us and providing for us. Every day, 
through the best times, through the most difficult times, you are there. You are faithful. You are good. So grateful today to know you. I pray, God, for those who maybe you haven't ever taken that step, God, that they would, that initial step of faith. And then for those of us who, who know you and claim a relationship with you, God, that we would not live trying to control our lives ourselves, but to live under your control and to know the security and this, the, the, the confidence that brings to us. Thank you, God, for saving us. You alone, God, are worthy. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name.